Do turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read that in just a moment, but before we read that, I'm going to read to you the background passage from Genesis. You don't need to look it up. I'll read it to you from Genesis chapter 22, and then we'll read it, Hebrews 11. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which the Lord had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now to our text, Hebrews 11 and verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Lord, please open our eyes to see and our minds to grasp your truth revealed in your most sacred word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
One of the things that's very interesting as we read this great catalog of faith in Hebrews 11 is that in the account of Abraham's faith, God is absolutely silent about his failures. I find that encouraging that God takes into account the overall trend of a person's life and that he doesn't focus on the missteps and the slip-ups along the way. That is not to say, of course, that a holy God minimizes sin. Abraham did sin, and he had to pay emotionally and through his family for, in an earthly manner, if not with eternal results. Because Abraham had two sons. The first son is called the son, or we may call him, the son of expediency. Ishmael was his name. The background is that Abraham and Sarah really believed God. This is never in doubt or dispute anywhere in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah took God seriously at His word. When God said that they would have a seed, a family, through whom all the families of the world would be blessed, that there would be descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, they believed God. But as the days and months and years passed, it became very apparent that if they were going to have a child, that it could not be Sarah that would have the child. Not only had she been barren all of her life, but now she was past menopause and there was no possibility whatsoever of her bearing children. Abraham and Sarah decided to become a bit creative about the promise of God. It was Sarah's idea. They had a maid called Hagar. She was part of their household, part of the extended family in those days. Abraham could sleep with her, and they could have a child, and they would adopt the child. And in that way, because the child would be Abraham's child, the promise of God would remain intact. And in that way, they would have family. Well, Abraham goes along with Sarah's suggestion. Ishmael is born, and as a result of that expediency, there has been hostility and rivalry between Ishmael and his descendants and Isaac and his descendants, a rivalry and a hostility that still lasts to this day, 4,000 years later. In other words, when we sin, even where our sin is forgiven, even where that promise of God that we read earlier in our service, that God will forgive and remember our sins no more, is absolutely true. And you can see that here in Hebrews 11. Abraham's sins are not mentioned by God. Nonetheless, there are temporal earthly effects and consequences of our sinful actions that affect not only us, but our families, and even perhaps a generation succeeding. Well, God came to Abraham again, <clears throat> and this time God says to him, 
As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name not Sarai, but Sarah, meaning princess. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abraham fell about laughing. Did you know that the two characters in the Bible we're told laughed a lot were Abraham and Sarah? They were the ones first for those three and those initials that we use when we're texting people. LOL, well, it was Abraham and Sarah that were the first to laugh out loud. And they laughed out loud at the promises of God. Can you believe that? So God, however, was not laughing. This is what it says. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And God comes to them and says, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. God was going to have the last laugh on them. And they would have a son called. Every time they called him, he laughs. Every time they called, he laughs in for dinner, or he laughs to come and have breakfast, or he laughs to go and milk the goats. They were reminding themselves that God always has the last laugh. Isn't that amazing? Well, Ishmael was the son of expediency. Isaac was the son of promise. It was through Isaac that all the nations of the world would be blessed, through Isaac that the Messiah would come. And it's knowing this background that helps you to understand the enormity of what is going on in the text that we have read from Hebrews today. Let me summarize the text in these words. When he was tested, Abraham sacrificed his only begotten, accounting that God was able to raise the dead. Let's break that down. When he was tested. This is the story of a test. You read that in Genesis 22. These are the words that open the story. After these things, God tested Abraham. At what point in his life was Abraham? At this point in his life, we know that Abraham had been justified by faith. Back in chapter 15 of Genesis, it ends with these words, he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was a believer in the same manner in which everyone in this room this morning who is a Christian is a believer. God had given him a promise. The promise was about Christ. Abraham believed the promise. That is, he believed in Christ, and he was justified. He was made right with God. He was put in a right relationship with God on the basis of his believing in Christ. So he's, that's the stage he's at. And he has been living by faith since that moment. 
Of course, it wasn't perfect faith, no more than yours is perfect faith. There were moments of worry. There were moments of doubt. There were the ups and downs. There were the wobbly moments where, where he's still trusting God that he's wobbling a bit, and you've done that too. But where the Lord gives faith to people, He also tests our faith. The author of Hebrews has talked about this before. Uh, Earlier on in chapter 2, for example, he talks about Jesus when Jesus was here. He was tested, just like his people are tested. In chapter 4, it says that in every respect, Jesus was tested and tempted the way we are, yet without sin. It's because Jesus in His human nature was tested the way we are that it says He is able to help those who are being tested. Our Lord Jesus has been tested. He is is tried and tested. He has gone through that process. Therefore, the the author says, He is able to come alongside you when you're tested and support you and understand what you're going through because He was tested in every point like we are. Now, this word tested is used in a variety of ways and very often is translated to communicate that variety of ways in in our English Bibles. But the word to test is used sometimes like this. The devil takes some circumstance in your life that is a challenge to you, that, that is a roadblock, perhaps, in your life. He ta- takes that, and he tries to use that to deceive you or to solicit your cooperation in sinning against God. That's the kind of test Jesus had when he was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tested by the devil. There the devil wanted to distract him from going to the cross. There the devil wanted him to take an easy way to have the kingdoms of this world instead of dying for them. He was tempted by the devil. And God can, the devil rather can use the tests and trials of life, and what he wants to do with them is he wants to make you angry at God. He wants to make you curse God. He wants to make you uh, reject Christ. He wants to make you sin. But there's another way in which this word testing is used in the Bible. We, We test someone or something in order to learn something. The Queen of Sheba, for example. She went with a whole list of test questions, the kind of questions you get at school. We have from time to time in our schools what they called intelligence tests. I remember them very well. They had them on these days, and you had to answer all the questions, and then the rest of the day when you got out was free. Well, apparently the only thing that computed with me was the all the rest of the day is free bit. I went in, ticked a couple of boxes, and left and felt that sense of liberation when you walk out of school and everybody else is in school and you are free to do your own. This is amazing. I didn't quite get the point of the intelligence tests. 
uh, and you can make your own conclusions <laughs> from that. Well, Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon with an intelligence test to assess just how wise Solomon was, and her confession was, the half has never been told me. God does not test either, in either of those two ways. God never tests us in such a way as to lead us into sin. This is what James says, let no one say when they are tempted, I am te being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The same circumstances that are used by the devil to try and entice us and deceive us into sin the same circumstances are used by God to do something very different. God tests in order that we might come to know ourselves. He doesn't test us to find out how we're doing. His tests are not to take our pulse or to discover what intelligence levels we have. God sends tests so that we find out about ourselves. That's what God said to Israel. The Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know so that you know what is in your heart. God knew what was in their heart. These tests that they encountered in the desert when they were thirsty and they needed water, when they were hungry and they needed food, and they turned on Moses, their leader, and they blame him for everything because through him they're blaming God. They were all tests to show them what was in their heart. Later on, Hezekiah the king was also tested to expose what was in his heart, it says in 2 Chronicles 32. And you'll remember Jesus and that rich young ruler that came to him, and Jesus loved him because this man was a man who was upright and moral. He said he kept the Ten Commandments. He'd never broken any of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says to him, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Do you know Jesus will never say that to you? That is not a, that is not a general command for you. That is a specific command to that young man to show that young man that although he thought he had kept all ten of the commandments, there was one commandment he had broken. He made an idol of his money, and he didn't know it. Because when he heard that, he went away exceedingly sorry. God sends tests that we might know ourselves. When God comes to Abraham afterwards and says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your only begotten Son from me, he is using human language and accommodating himself to the level of this man, this human being, as if to say, now do you see? Your faith is genuine. And Abraham was justified by works. James says, the one who had been justified by faith alone in Christ alone 
is shown to be justified, vindicated by the works that he did. In this respect, God has not one word of critique. We see faith at work in this man. Now, God often sends trials to you and I in our Christian lives. Do you know what Abraham teaches us is this? There are tests and trials that may not kick in till the very end of your life. That there is no point in your Christian experience where you're entirely free of them. And that the tests and the trials of life are good for us in this respect. They show us the areas in our hearts where there is, there is a place of controversy with God or a place of disagreement with God or a, a secret sin that is being nourished and cherished in the heart. Abraham, you see, he had to learn the difference between the flesh and the spirit. He had to, he had to learn the difference between the son of expediency, which had been he and his wife using their own imagination to try and help God out. Trying to resolve the problem for God in their own strength and in their own flesh. Ishmael was not only the son of expediency, he was a son of the flesh, the human perspective, the human reason, the human mind, the human heart. And there was Isaac. Isaac was conceived in her womb by a miracle of God, by an intervention of God, by a gift of God. And he was a man who had to discover in his own life and through this very experience the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Experiency and promise. Us doing things our way, trying to solve our problems our way, trying to guide the church our way, trying to lead our Christian lives in our own strength and the way of the Spirit of God. He was tested. And when he was tested, Abraham offered up his only begotten. Go back to the text again offering up his only son. The word son is not in the original. It's supplied. In the original, the word only is the word monogenes, which means only begotten. And throughout the history of Christianity and Judaism before it, that's what this word meant. The early church fathers who were Greek, the Greek fathers we call them, because they spoke Greek, funnily enough, and uh, they understood that the word monogenes meant only birthed or only generated or only begotten. They understood that. And uh, there's been modern research. A paper was given in, uh, at the Evangelical Theological Society in 2016. And this exhaustive research paper that was given there led many who have moved away from this. And in the middle of the 20th century, by the way, there was a feeling among some scholars cut off from the rest of Christian tradition, of course, that the phrase should be one and only rather than only begotten. And it sneaked its way into our translations. Well, the good thing about the 2016 Evangelical Theological Society 
conference was that some of the people who gave us the ESV were at the conference and changed their minds. Now we're just hoping and praying that that change will find its way through to the next edition of the uh, English, what is it we call it? The every, every day per perfect scripture edition. We need to use the word that's there in this context because of its importance. Only begotten is used here because only begotten is used elsewhere of someone else. The only begotten was the one who was begotten of Sarah by a miracle and intervention of God in this case the child of the flesh and, and, and of human ingenuity and expediency did not rank in terms of God's purposes for humanity. It was the child of promise that was the important thing. And this helps us then to understand the absolute impact of these words that we read, that I read to you from Genesis 22. Take your son, your only begotten, Isaac, whom you love. Let that sink in. Take your son, your only begotten, Isaac, whom you love. Each word, each word had its emotional impact on this man. Each word underlined the promise of God, the promise of a child by Sarah, the promise of the Messiah who would come from that child, the promise of blessing to the world, the, the promise that in him every family on earth would be blessed by God in one way or another. Everything hung on that child. And here is God coming to him and saying, take your son, your only begotten, Isaac, your beloved, and offer him by way of sacrifice. I just want to reassure everybody in this room and everybody listening to this sermon, God will never, ever ask you to do that. He will never ask you to do that. It's against God's law to do that. But God is the right in His economy because He possesses Abraham and Isaac and they're His to give Abraham this command and to test him this way but he will never test you this way. Let me reassure you of that. He will never test you this way. This test shows us how far Abraham's faith has come. This is why he is called the father of believers. Notice, he does not argue. There are no questions. There is no delay. In fact, we're told this, 
early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey, took two of his young men's servants with him, and his son Isaac, cut the wood, got it ready, and went to the place which God had told him. That's obedience. Incredible obedience. Blows my mind obedience to the most incredible command that you can imagine. This is one in history, this story. Because what it is pointing us to is a one-time-in-history event, as we shall see. And see what Hebrews says here. What does Hebrews say? He offered up Isaac. The word there means, the word offered up means, he slew and offered Isaac. You say, but he didn't. Isaac was spared. But I bring you back to the text. He slew and offered Isaac. Isaac was already dead in Abraham's mind. He was acting in obedience to God's word that Isaac was as good as dead. For those three days that it took to get from where they lived to the place of sacrifice on Mount Moriah, near Mount Moriah, Isaac was dead to his father. It would have broken his father's heart. But he acted out of duty. And the Holy Spirit says here, this man offered up Isaac. The Holy Spirit who knew his heart tells us he offered up Isaac. Isaac was dead. All he had to do was use the knife. That was the last thing. All, everything else had been processed, sacrificed, given over, surrendered wholly to God. That's why James says, wasn't Abraham and our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar? His works demonstrate his justification. And as soon as God commanded Abraham, Abraham said, it's done. It's done. Now consider again what Isaac represented, quite apart from being the son of his and Sarah's love. And they're having to wait until she was 99 and he was over 100 before he was born. This boy was the son of promise. To Isaac were built in all the promises of God. The promise of your salvation the promise of eternal life to you and to people from all the nations of this world were all contained in Isaac. The coming of Christ included in Isaac. All the hopes of the church were there in Isaac. In other words, what was at stake was not just natural affection. It was religious conviction that was at stake. And he was the one that was to be sacrificed. How did Abraham do it? 
Hebrews says, it was by faith. He believed God. By faith, he trusted God. When he was tested, Abraham offered up his only begotten. Here's the third part of that phrase, accounting that God was able to raise the dead. Let me read it to you from the ESV. He considered, he reckoned, he accounted that God was even able to raise him from the dead. He reckoned God was powerful enough. In fact, from the record in Genesis itself, we find that after they reached the appointed place, Abraham moved uh, with Isaac uh, to go on to the place of sacrifice, and he turned to the servants, and he said to the servants, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there to worship and come again, come again to you. Isn't that remarkable? You see, the patriarch thought through the promise and the command. He he rested in God's character. He thought God keeps his word. He trusted in God's power. When Sarah was barren and beyond childbearing age, he gave us this miracle child by his power alone. And you can see how he gets to that place. He uses reason to get to that place. Now, reason on its own, Thomas Aquinas is often wrongly accused of thinking that human reason unhelped by God can do anything human reason wants to do. Actually, he says that human reason standing on its own never gets you anywhere to understanding the things of God. Human reason is not a good master, but human reason is a good servant to faith. What faith does, you see, is faith cleanses, washes, renews human reason so that it is now a useful tool and instrument in grasping the things of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit alone. And what, what, what we find Abraham doing here is we find him acting in faith and then reasoning within faith, coming to conclusions. This is what believers have done. For example, Bernard, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this, there are three things that support my hope. One, there is the readiness of grace. Two, the truth of of the promise. And three, the power of performance, that is of God's performance. Abraham had, had high thoughts of God's truth, of God's Word. Like the psalmist, he could say, you have magnified above all things your name and your Word. Abraham had a quiet confidence in the power of God. He is able that promised, says the the writer of Hebrews. 
Or in Ephesians 1, the exceeding greatness of his mighty power that was wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Here's how faith reasons. Faith looks at creation through the lens of revelation, the lens of Holy Scripture. It looks at creation and it says, who formed all these? That's what God said to Job. God said to Job, who made all this? All made by the mighty work of God. Or you're taken to the incarnation. Here is God in flesh, the God-man, Emmanuel. Who did this? Well, it was God who did it. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead. And look inside your own heart. Why are you at church today and not with the rest of the world doing their own things? Why do you think of God? Why do you love God? Why are you trusting in Christ? Do you think that just happens to some people and not others? It is a miracle. It is the miracle of the new birth that there is anybody who believes in God. It is a work of supernatural intervention in the lives of a man or a woman in order that they should come and worship this God we've come to worship today. Look at that miracle within you and reason from that. If God can make things with His Word, if God can unite Himself to our humanity in Christ, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, if God can work this miracle of conversion in my heart, is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything impossible? God is infinite. Therefore, I can't comprehend Him. God is immense. I cannot measure Him. God is the Creator. That means He's not like us. God is almighty. There is nothing that He cannot do. Remember the Apostle Paul once talking to some people in Acts 26 said to them, why should it be thought a thing incredible to you that God should raise the dead? And our text says, in figure, in a figure, figuratively speaking, Abraham received him back from the dead. I mentioned earlier the flesh-spirit thing. This changed the way that Abraham looked at Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac represented the gracious divine, sovereign initiative of God in intervening in a life. All of God, all of grace, all of the Spirit of God. In Abraham's mind, he had done the deal. The knife was at Isaac's throat before God intervened and provided a lamb for the offering. And he received Isaac back, literally. But more than anything else, he received Isaac back as a figure 
The Greek word is the word parable, as a picture, as a figure, as, a, as a, an, an indicator of something else, of resurrection from the dead. And Abram believed in the resurrection of the dead from that moment on. He could say our creed, the resurrection of the dead from that moment on. You see, when you read the story of this boy, you really do need to think of the story of another boy. Isaac was about 25 years of age. When this happened to him, he was a grown man. He cooperated with his father all the way. You can imagine that. Abram's over 100. Maybe your granny or grandpa are in their 80s. Could they tie up a 25-year-old man when they're in their 80s? I don't think so. I don't think Abram can do it without Isaac's help, frankly. Don't tie that too hard, Dad. That's a bit tight. On On the altar he climbed. He cooperated with his father. There's no question about that. But think about Isaac for a moment. He was the son of promise. Everything about your salvation was tied into him. And from Isaac came one who is the son of promise, the one promised. He was only begotten. That is, he was the only begotten son of Abraham and Sarah, by an intervention, a miracle, a supernatural event in her womb. And this other boy, he was the only begotten, the only begotten of his father from all eternity, the only begotten of his mother by an active intervention of God in the womb of the virgin. For three days, Isaac was as good as dead before he was brought back. For three days, this other one was dead before he was raised from the dead. And at the crucial moment, when all was lost, and the knife was raised, God intervened in Abraham's life. Abraham, you've gone far enough. You don't have to go any further. There's a ram in the thicket. Sacrifice the lamb, the male lamb, instead, instead of Isaac. Those words, instead of, take us to the heart of the good news of the gospel. They are substitutionary words in place of, something in place of something else. On the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that should have been upon us was placed upon him. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting on the story of Isaac and Abraham, says this to you whenever you are being tested, 
wherever you feel that you need resources that are beyond your ability, will God give you those resources? Will God give you what you need in the time of testing? The apostle says this, God who did not spare His only begotten Son. He spared Abraham's, but He did not spare His only begotten Son. Will He not freely give us all things, all that you need, every spiritual blessing there is in Christ, every supply you need for these tests that you face in your life, will He not give you what you need if He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all? Let's pray. Father, we pray that today we might just get a glimpse of the simple gospel one that Abraham went through the emotional turmoil he must have gone through in order, to, in order to be able to testify to this. And that is a sign and a seal to us of your great generosity towards your people. Lord, will you point us to Christ today, a greater than Isaac, the one in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.